May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord God, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. So I've had this one word resounding in my mind and heart all morning. Uh, it, it flowed out of my sermon prep, which was already locked up, sermon in the can, ready to go. But this one word just kept ringing in my ears. The word is enough. Enough. I'm praying that that word will make sense as I preach this morning. I'm imagining a congregation in another part of the world that's gathered for worship this morning. And um, they're singing jubilantly with great fervor and passion. Now, that's not unique. Um, That happens here. That happens all over the country, indeed all over the world. Um, many of you have traveled. Uh, you've, you've heard God's praises being sung with great enthusiasm in lots of places. Um, I've worshiped in great cathedrals. Um, I've worshiped in uh, villages in Rwanda. Uh, and it always happens that people sing. In, in Rwanda, they don't just sing they dance, and you better be prepared. Someone cued me in, in advance. If someone comes and stands in front of you and dances, you have to dance too. Uh, I'm just thankful that none of that made it into you, onto YouTube. <laughs> I'm imagining this congregation where people are singing in that fashion, and um, in walks the preacher. That happens everywhere too. It's rare to go to a Christian worship service where at least one person doesn't stand up to preach. Only in this case, the preacher doesn't have a Bible because the Bible was taken from him when his village was raided and everything destroyed. Indeed, this congregation is worshiping in the midst of open space because they no longer have any building to call their own. Indeed, the entire village where this pastor lived, his hometown, was utterly razed by the Sudanese government. That pastor is a friend of mine. His name is Andudu. He's a bishop in exile. He, he now lives in Harrisonburg, Virginia. He's now in the employ of our diocese and of ACNA to gather dispersed Sudanese and other African refugees all over North America and Sometime I hope and pray that you have a chance to hear his testimony and the immensely moving stories of of his work. He called me this week and um, uh, we're hoping to to meet soon and uh, to talk about how our diocese can get after the work of training up leaders for these diaspora African congregations. He's already planted an Arabic speaking church in Harrisonburg, Virginia. That's amazing. Enough. Sure, they'd like to have a large building with places to sit where they didn't have to rely on their memory and they could have hymnals perhaps. Or I'm sure that uh, he and the pastors of his diocese in, in Sudan in the Nuba Mountains would love to have Bibles that weren't taken from them, seized and burned. I'm sure you'd love to have 
a large, beautiful sanctuary. You've been a kind of diaspora people for a long time. A movable feast, that's, that's what this church has been. And now you're about to move again. Um, and, and you're imagining uh, good things that will come with that move. Um, it won't be everything. But you're like almost every other congregation in our diocese, believe it or not, that doesn't have its own space, that rents space. The congregation I served as an interim last year, All Saints in Durham, worships in a Seventh-day Adventist church. Um, be careful if you do that, because uh, they'll say you can't use real wine. Or have bacon at church breakfasts. In Washington, D.C., congregations have met in Baptist churches, in all kinds of other churches, always moving. And now they're, for the first time, are trying to buy a church of their own at resurrection. But it's commonplace. But it's enough. Because Jesus is enough. And that's the message that's going to resound uh, coming out of this wonderful passage from, from Colossians. Our goal, individually and corporately, is to grow spiritually into the character and likeness of Jesus. That's Paul's overarching message. Paul's goal for the Colossians and his goal for us is Christ-likeness. And that's the work God has already begun in us, right? Philippians says that in chapter 1. This is the work that God has not only begun in us, but will see through to completion. Paul is concerned about the health and effectiveness of this young church in Colossae. So what does he say? Well, we've already heard him say the thematic two verses that really we need to kind of rehearse every week just to remember the basis for the enoughness of Jesus. Chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. If you were to take those two verses alone, you could, you could trot them out and use them as the interpretive key for everything else in the entire letter. I'll just challenge you to do that. Memorize those two verses and then see how they are unfolded and unpacked and how they illuminate the rest of the letter. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Just as you received Jesus, so walk in him. That never changes. That's enough. There is no PhD in Christianity. There are no experts. There are theologians. And, and they're a help. They really are. Sometimes. There are biblical scholars for which I am immensely grateful. There are people who know a lot and have experienced a lot, but there are no graduate level Christians. There are no PhDs in Christianity. 
the appeal Paul makes is always on the basis of that enoughness. And we're going to see that again and again today. On the basis of that appeal, this passage focuses a lot of Paul's attention on a series of warnings. Uh, he warns against deceptive philosophy. Now, be clear, it, it's not, he's, not, he's not taking a shot at learning. He warns against irrelevant practices. That's a really important warning. He's saying, you, you, can, you can spin your wheels, you can spend a lot of time and energy engaging in all kinds of spiritual practices that may, at the end of the day, not help you one whit in controlling the desires of the flesh. He warns against empty promises he, and against false purity. Always sort of in the background is the enoughness that he's already detailed for us. Um, already in chapter 1 in verses 15 through 20. Go back and look at it at some point. There's that wonderful hymn of praise to Jesus Christ. It's not just a throwaway. It's not just a, a, a random citation of a, of a song that they must have sung and, and known by heart in Colossae. Paul, Paul begins that way so that we know the foundation of, of everything, so that we have a basis that is enough. And the big word in this section of Colossians today is the word fullness. I heard Laura pray it this morning. I, I, could, I could tell she'd spent some time reflecting on, on Colossians this week. Fullness. In fact, this would be a fun exercise for you this week. Take, take your Bible, uh, a Bible you don't mind marking up, and, and read through Colossians. It, it'll only take you about 20 minutes. It's a short book, four chapters. Um, and underline every occurrence of the word all, every fullness filled. All, every fullness filled. Colossians is a book of universals. And the big universal word in, in today's chapter is fullness. Christ is all sufficient and all supreme. God has, has, God has received fullness in Christ, verse 9. And we have the benefits of being joined to him, verse 10, which includes the stripping away of the sinful nature, verses 11 to 12. Being made alive and having all our sins forgiven, 12 and 13, through the victory of the cross, 14 and 15. Paul opposes everything which might lead us to believe that Christ is not enough. This is important. Paul is fighting to ensure that his readers and that we recognize the fullness of Christ and to encourage us to live lives that are consistent with the consequences of that fullness. Because this is the truth. The fullness that belongs to Christ is the same fullness that has filled us. It's a wonderful Greek word, pleroma. It just, it's rich, pleroma. That's the word fullness. Um, I, I read a little reflection by a pastor in Alabama this week. He said, we have been pleromized. <laughs> we have been filled with the fullness of Christ. That's enough. 
You don't need to acquire anything beyond that. What we need to do is to live out of that fullness, to realize the full and rich consequences of having in us the same fullness that Christ had in him bodily. Essentially, Paul is fighting a struggle for the primacy of Christ. There's no need to seek a supplement elsewhere. Again, verses 9 and 10. For in him the whole fullness of of death dwells bodily, and you have come to fullness in him. So what this passage does is it aims to make us more fully aware of the immensity of the gift which is given us in Christ. Back to verses 6 and 7 of chapter 2. Remember how they ended? You've received Christ, now walk in him. And the last phrase is abounding in thanksgiving. That's the surefire mark of a mature Christian, someone who is abounding in thanksgiving, which is to say someone who gratefully acknowledges that in Christ is all the fullness of God and in me is the fullness of Christ, and that's enough. The ability to identify the gift and to give thanks is what marks a mature Christian. Now, Paul layers on a couple of other words and images to, to sort of fill out the picture of what that fullness look like, looks like. He wants us to, he wants us to understand in, in depth what we have received from Christ and through Christ and in Christ. He, he, he calls attention to our baptism. He, he likens it to circumcision in the Old Testament, and that would be a sermon in itself. But you have been baptized. You've been You've died with Christ. You've been buried with Christ. You'll you'll read the same thing in Romans chapter 6. All the wonderful words that we use in the liturgy of baptism to describe what happens to us in baptism, that we've been grafted into Christ, that we've been adopted. And finally, you've been made alive in Christ. You've been raised with Christ. And now, Paul says, because all that's true, because you have in you the fullness of Christ, you've been baptized, and because you're alive in Christ, now, therefore. Always perk up and pay attention when you get a therefore in Paul. He reminds them who they are. You are alive in Christ. You're going to hear this sentence probably three or four times this morning. You are alive in Christ. Your identity, righteousness, Purpose and hope in him are secure and unshakable. You need to take that on board. We all need to memorize that and claim that because that's the truest truth about us in Jesus. You are alive in Christ. Your identity, righteousness, purpose, and hope in him are secure and unshakable. And so Paul says, because you're alive in Christ, don't let anyone judge or disqualify you. Let no one pass judgment on you, verse 16. Why are they being judged? Well, some are advocating uh, the use of pagan rituals alongside belief in Christ. Um, We don't need to spend any time digging into what those look like. The scholars have debated this for, for decades. Suffice it to say 
that what the Colossians are being judged for is that they are only worshiping Christ. And what's being offered to them is what we could call Christ plus. And Christ plus is no Christ at all. So, whoever these false teachers are in Colossae are saying, yeah, you're alive in Christ, but now you also need to keep these regulations and observe these festivals. You need to worship angels and all these other things. Paul says all that's shadows. All we need is substance, Jesus. It's no different in our day. All around us, plausible, practical, reasonable-sounding arguments One of the messages today is, eh, choose your own reality. Choose your truth. I cringe every time I hear that. Well, yeah, that's your truth, but here's my truth. Defining things according to our desires. Creating our own systems of belief. Maybe you've seen this bumper sticker that, uh, it's really popular in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, where I live. Um, it's got seven different symbols, seven different belief systems. Here's the thing. Some of those are even good. I would say some of those are even important. I'm all for environmental awareness and conservation. I'm committed to human dignity. I want to pursue justice. All of those things have the ring of truth. But here's the thing. None of those things lead to forgiveness or salvation or eternal life. Which is why, as soon as I'm done here, we're going to stand up and profess the Nicene Creed. We do it every week so that there's no mistaking what the parameters of what we believe are. What the truth is. The truth. The story there is no Christ plus. You're alive in Christ. Your identity, righteousness, purpose, and hope in him are secure and unshakable. Which is why then Paul says, grow then with a growth that is from God. And I'm going to use my remaining time this morning just to focus in on what that growth looks like and how it happens. Grow with a growth that is from God. You've heard Paul say in other places in his letters, right? 1 Corinthians 3, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Or Philippians 2, 13, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is the work of God in your life and mine to conform us into his image. It's God who accomplishes growth in our lives. We heard it already in chapter 1, verse 28. We proclaim Jesus, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Look at verse 19. Holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. connected with Christ, 
from whom the whole body of the church draws its life, through which all its muscles and ligaments and joints are sustained. It's reminiscent of another familiar passage that you probably know even better from Ephesians 4, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And And then Paul goes on to use the same ligament and tendon language to describe how connected to each other and connected to Christ, God gives us growth. Now first, Paul warns us about these false gospels. I'd love if we had lots of time to just veer off on a rabbit trail for a little while and and explore some of those false gospels, the prosperity gospel, which is plaguing Africa. Ask my friend, Bishop Andudu. Or something that scholars call moral therapeutic deism. It's a big term to describe the religion of lots and lots of young people, my my kids and grandkids' age. Moral therapeutic deism with its projection of a distant God who expects nothing from us but radically intervenes when dog whistled, turning God into an on-call therapist. Fifty-odd years ago, an American church historian said, you can wrap up all of these false, false gospels and and." and characterize them this way. They present to us a God without wrath who brought men and women without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministry of a Christ without a cross. Cheap grace. Cheap grace. Guy's name was Richard Niebuhr. So how do you grow to maturity? Speaking the truth in love, Paul wrote to the Ephesians, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You and I are to grow individually and corporately into the body of Christ. And to live a life, a mature life worthy of Christ, is to be marked by fruitfulness. Here's what a friend of mine in D.C. said recently. To be a fruitful person means that in your relational networks, you give rise through your influence to health and holiness in others. That's a good question for your week. Am I giving rise to health and holiness in those around me? Does that up the ante just a little bit for your relationships? Here's how we grow. First, nourishment. Paul loves body language. Nourishment. We must put ourselves under the authority of the loving and written word of God, which Paul promises elsewhere, teaches us, rebukes us. Just stop there for a second. If you're like me, 
you love reading your Bible when it says cool stuff. I love reading Psalms that encourage me and lift my spirits. I love to read prayers of praise. Be honest. How much do you love being rebuked by the word of God? Or corrected? Or trained in righteousness? So the first pathway to growth that Paul talks about is the pathway of submission to the word. The entire word, not just your favorite parts. Allowing the word to work its way in us. Not just the way we want the word to work for us. The word must have its way with us. That's what submission to the word means. So there's nourishment. Uh, Growth also needs the right kind of environment. That's all of you together. We submit ourselves not only to the head, Christ, but also to the body, the family of faith. And all the things we experience in life under the sovereign hand of God, God testing us, purifying us, equipping us for service, all of that is is an essential means to our growth. It's really important, and this is a really hard lesson for American Christians to learn. Still, we are not our own. We belong to Christ, and we have a place in the body of Christ. Each of us with a unique role and responsibility, but we don't operate independently. We take direction and guidance from the head, and we make ourselves accountable to one another. It's not accidental that the most frequent word in Paul's letters when he describes the life and ministry of a local church is one word, which we translate with two, one another. All the really important stuff that happens in a congregation, Paul says, happens to and with and for one another. Just test me out. Poke around in the letter sometime and and see how often one anothering comes into the foreground. Knowing Christ and growing in Christ is inseparable from belonging to the body of Christ. So there's nourishment, there's the environment, and then there's exercise. You totally don't need me giving lectures about exercise. Except in a theological sense. Which is to say, we grow in witness and service. Entering God's redemptive work out there, where we live, study, and work. We give our lives away for the sake of others. That's essential to our growth. If all we do is pack in Bible knowledge, I said this last week, that's stunted growth. If you never exercise, what happens? You get fat. And you can't move. You want to grow? Put yourself between God who is love and the pain of a broken, fallen, and suffering world. Follow Jesus where he's going. Feeding, clothing, sheltering, freeing, binding up. I'm really excited for you all as you move to the synagogue and to a new neighborhood. Uh, and you know, I live not far 
this summer from, from that neighborhood. It's just up the street, and I poked around a little bit just to get a feel. Um, there are a lot of churches in that neighborhood. Uh, most of them don't have the names that they started with. Um, and in most of them, the congregations don't look like the original founding congregations. Uh, and a fair number of those churches are boarded up and unused entirely. But there sits the synagogue, a beautiful old building. And I think it's a wonderful opportunity to relearn the art of neighboring. You're, you're suddenly not going to be tucked away in a, in a hidden little corner of Fairfield. You're going to be more publicly visible. Purposely and prayerfully meeting the neighbors, doing things together, learning to love and serve them, and proclaiming the good news of Jesus. There's actually, actually something kind of cool and subversive about the thought of you know, training to proclaim the good news of Jesus while worshiping in a synagogue. I mean, just take that on board and ponder a little bit. Do you want to grow? Submit to the word, submit to each other. Give yourselves away to your neighbors and put yourself at risk of being misunderstood, judged or rejected because you're sharing the good news of Jesus. You'll never feel more alive or needy. In fact, I sent a video clip to the Church of the Apostles in Raleigh that Kevin helped me make this week and uh, they're looking at it this morning in worship because I'm going to be their interim rector for the next year. And the last thing I said to them is, for this work of the gospel, for learning how to grow in Jesus and give our lives away in Jesus, we are wholly inadequate. So what does that tell you? What do you do when you feel completely inadequate? When in you, with your resources and your abilities and your knowledge, you're not enough. What do you do? You pray. This drives us to our knees. We grow by being under the word, connected to the body of Christ, loving and serving our neighbors, proclaiming the good news of Jesus, and praying. So don't forget, you're alive in Christ. You are alive in Christ. Your identity, your righteousness, your purpose, your hope in him are secure and unshakable. Therefore, hold fast to Jesus and grow with the growth that from God, that comes from God and leads you into maturity. What's maturity? Christ-likeness. Being like Jesus, who is enough. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.